Where do the best fantasy baseball writers and analysts get their ideas? We'll ask Michael Salfino, Wall Street Journal and Yahoo Sports analyst and writer, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, June the 16th. It's show number 34 of the 2015 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. We'll talk with Michael Salfino, the Wall Street Journal and Yahoo Sports analyst and writer, about where he gets his ideas, strikeouts versus swinging strike rates, special K relievers, studs and duds, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, with the Twins already having called up top prospects Byron Buxton and Jorge Polanco, analyst Rob Gordon has a scouting double play with two more top Twins prospects, third baseman Miguel Sano and right-hander Jose Barrios. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield speculates on a few rotation changes in St. Louis. And in our Frequent Flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Adam Duval, Stephen Matz, and Dilson Herrera. It's another big Tuesday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Michael Salfino's probably thought of three more new ideas while he's waiting to go on. So let's talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Tuesday edition, our feature expert interview with Michael Salfino from the Wall Street Journal and Yahoo Sports. Michael, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's your first time. Pleasure to be here, Patrick. Looking forward to it. Oh, it's a great pleasure to have you. Uh, for our listeners should know that uh, Michael and I have met at various uh, fantasy sports industry events, Tout Wars in New York and so forth, and always very interesting conversations at those events anyways. And Michael, uh, as you'll come to appreciate in this segment, is a, a guy who thinks outside the box and puts things together in a very interesting way. So Michael, it's really great to have you. I'm looking forward to discussing all of that with you. I'm very curious what you think about a couple of teams in real baseball so far that have been really Really surprising, starting with the Toronto Blue Jays, 11 in a row, they're scoring runs by the bucketful. Do you think the Toronto Blue Jays are for real? They're an offensive-oriented team, which is the kind of team that I typically root for because the conventional baseball wisdom is some ridiculous percentage of baseball is pitching, and, and obviously um, I don't think the numbers back that up. So when a team wins with hitting, uh, I, I I enjoy that because it sets that conventional wisdom on its ear. And, and they are a very prolific offensive team. They're, they're kind of a frightening force, especially against this uh, left-handed pitching. Uh, they're on pace to be one of the all-time teams in OPS against left-handed pitching. And if you just that for the error, because most of the teams that are with them in that top five to seven range all-time uh, played it in a much more uh, heightened offensive error. So... The fact that they are doing so well this year, uh, I think the next best team, they have about a 60 OPS lead on the next best team in, in uh, against left-handed pitching. And there are no slouches, obviously, against right-handed pitching either, but um, lefties especially really have no chance against against them. And it's going to be interesting this week when John Neese of the Mets, who's battling for a place in this five- to six-man rotation <laughs> depending on the... Yeah. The, the day of the week and the whim of manager Terry Collins, 
he's probably going to be in for a severe thumping this week because, you know, he's not even a league average lefty, and he's going to go into Toronto to try to uh, compete with that Blue Jay offense. Sounds like Toronto Blue Jays might be a good stack against uh, left-handed pitchers like John Neese in a daily game. Yeah, you know, I was thinking, like, how many could you actually get in there? There's these optimizers now where you can just um, pretty much like block out every team except for that team and see what kind of a lineup it gives you and then just maybe substitute guys that just aren't going to play if you force the system to put it in. But at least it'll, it'll give you, I guess, you know, the guys that are, have the highest projected point total. But obviously that would be – you should be able to get guys like Valencia, um, Cheap, you know, who's going to platoon basically – it would be a very interesting stack to get like six or seven hitters in against me. I don't think most uh, most daily sites allow that that big of a stack. I know uh, FanDuel. I think they limit you to four. Oh, really? I didn't even know that. Yeah, I, mean, I never. It never even occurred to me to try to play more than four. I wonder why that is. I don't know why it is either. I, I wonder if it has something to do with the sites trying to maximize the variation that's present in all of the lineups that are in a particular game, whether it's a cash game or a tournament game, because they don't want to have a million teams tied, and they're trying to in some way limit that option insofar as the uh, availability of of uh, finding an edge somehow. Yeah, you know, I'm very curious about this, because there are obviously there are so many things that you can do in terms of trying to generate some sort of edge, and there are uh, so many variables that, when, once you research them, can conceivably at least be leveraged into some sort of advantage in a daily game. But I go back to my old way of thinking. There was a, there's a great book called um, uh, Expert Political Judgment. I think the author is Tetlock, and basically what he says is that experts really are kind of hoisted on their petards because they think that the more they know, the better their predictions are when really that's not the case at all. And it turns out that people armed with a relatively uh, narrow uh, band of information can uh, compete in terms of prediction accuracy, lay people, with these experts who are armed to the teeth with so many things um, that, you know, it turns out just create the illusion of, of being able to sort of glean what the future holds when, in reality, it doesn't really help you that much at all. I guess to a certain extent, it depends on what it is you're trying to predict. Uh, you know, Nate Silver and the Princeton team and that did a pretty good job of predicting the, the uh, Obama-Romney election. I think they all three hit the Electoral College right on the nose, and that was just using predictive methods that they had developed using computers and spreadsheets and so forth. Uh, I imagine baseball is a little bit uh, more difficult to do that. But on the other hand, if you're a guy with a fairly significant bankroll, a lot of fantasy predictions have to do with uh, trying to figure out the range. Like any any guy you put at you know four home runs for the year could be two to six and still be within consideration as an accurate projection. And if you have sixty grand to spend on on putting entries in, you can cover a wider range of the possibilities than a guy who's putting in one team. That's the thing too. Like the ranges that we get for annual predictions, I, I think are more reasonable. In other words, you're more likely to hit your target, where in the daily game, obviously, it's more binary. Right. It's very unlikely that you're going to hit exactly in that sort of like 50th percentile uh, bullseye. Um, it's either going to be 
uh, way low or way high. Moving on on this topic of surprise teams, the other team that's really surprising everybody, I think, is the Minnesota Twins. In fact, I looked at the standings and I was quite surprised uh, after Sunday's play. The Twins are actually higher in the standings on a one-loss basis than the Jays are, even after this 11-game winning streak. So uh, Minnesota's doing something right. They're second in the uh, American League Central, but just behind Kansas City. How about the Twins? Can they sustain what they're doing, do you think? Probably not. Uh, last time I checked, they were doing really well in batting average with runners in scoring position. That, to me, is like sort of a... Um, stat that you want to fade. Uh, I think that that's indicative, I think, of uh, a high luck factor in your record because it doesn't seem that, you know, a team that, an entire team that badly uh, or, or that significantly outperforms its overall batting average with runners in scoring position seems to me to be operating more on luck. The other thing that's interesting about the Twins, and I don't really have any insight as to whether or not this is... Um, uh, a, a high luck factor, um, but it seems to be one to me. Uh, I haven't really thought about it that much, but their relief core has a strikeout percentage that is so incredibly low in today's game. I think the league average strikeout rate right now for just bullpens is about um, 22%, and their rate uh, heading into yesterday's game was 15.4%. Wow. Strikeout rate, which is so odd because, you know, obviously the strikeouts are easier to come by in the in the pen usually because the, the pitchers can just like let it all go. Right. So I don't know, like what's your what's your sense of that? Is that something that that you think is indicative of a team that's uh, another luck factor? Or do you think that maybe they just have a pitch-to-contact bullpen that can be effective and maybe in terms of like generating ground balls, etc.? I think that's entirely possible. I would prefer to have a relief core that was throwing 25% strikeouts and I think because I think that's more sustainable. I mean, if you're getting a lot of ground balls, obviously uh, if you have a decent defensive infield, then you're going to be able to transform those batted balls into outs. But sooner or later, some of them start sneaking through. I mean, there's there's no controlling for it. Um, uh, ever since Voris McCracken identified that whole idea of batting average on balls in play, we know that, uh, especially on ground balls, it settles into a very um, well-known and, uh, and invariable level once you get uh, far enough into the season. And it seems to me that... Uh, not only their relief core, but their starting pitchers don't strike out enough guys to sustain this kind of success. And the other thing about the Twins is their run differential as of after Sunday night was plus two, 263 for 261 against. And usually when you have a team that's, you know, six, seven games above 500, you'd expect that run differential to be more like plus 25 or more. Uh, yeah, that, that that's interesting. Like the run differential stat is tricky because teams are getting blown out Obviously, that has such a big impact in terms of that statistic and, and, and as far as projecting what their win total should actually be. But in the real-world sense, do they care about that run differential? Like, once a game gets totally out of hand, you see a lot of teams, like, they take guys out of games. Um, if they're losing, like, you know, 7-1 to in the fifth inning, they might just take all their regulars out and not even care about who's pitching. So... Um, I, I don't really know about that, but one thing that's interesting, there is a pitcher that is a prospect in the Twins organization who is very un-Twins-like in terms of velocity and bat-missing ability, and that's Jose Barrios, who might be the next guy to skip AAA entirely and come up. That really seems to be in vogue this year, too. These, there are so many 20- and 21-year-old prospects this year 
compared to a normal year in, in my way uh, of, of thinking, at least to my memory. I don't know if you have the same impression, especially considering that we're still in mid-June. Now, we should point out that the Twins, since uh, the sort of the first week in June, have started losing quite a bit from the 5th of June through the 13th of June. They won one game and lost six or seven or maybe eight games, and they've really fallen back uh, insofar as that winning momentum that they have. So I guess we'll have to see. Uh, it's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. And Michael... I mentioned at the top of the show that you're an interesting guy to talk to because you think outside the box all the time. And I'm curious about that process, how you think up ideas like comparing one stat with another, creating a new ratio that provides new insight into performance. And your Pitching by the Numbers column at Yahoo Sports is a great example. Recently in a column, you compared overall strikeout percentage with swinging strike percentage. This is a terrific idea, and it really did open my eyes as far as how it affected how I look at those pitches. But where did this idea come from? You know, most of my ideas really have come out of a lifetime of uh, um, being in this northeast area, which is very contentious and and competitive, I guess, and where um, there's a high level of uh, debate about all things. And so sports obviously falls into that mix. So when I was a kid and growing up as a sports fan, I just would try to figure out insights that, you know, would, would sort of settle arguments decisively in my favor. <laughs> and, and that's kind of flowed into my work subsequently, where now I have all these resources at my disposal. And so if I, if I have, like, some sort of intuitive sense of, of a metric that may prove a point um, or or answer a question, I can usually get that data. Now, this is something that's really commonly available. And to be honest, like, I, I can't believe there's got to be other people that have been doing this for, for years. But basically what I did was I just took strikeout rate and I took um, swinging strike percentage. And, and I, mostly they correlate pretty well. And so I was trying to find the outliers, like either guys whose strikeout rates were way higher than their swinging strike rate would suggest or vice versa. And then what you could do is you could just normalize them because base, you know, since you're going to base it on the swinging strike rate in this instance, you would just find out a guy with a swinging strike rate of like Tyson Ross was like over 30% when I did the column. And that would mean that his strikeout rate should be over 30% because all the other guys who had a swinging strike rate over 30% had a corresponding strikeout rate itself of over 30%. And his strikeout rate rate was significantly lower. It might have been like 24, 23%. And so then I just recalculated the strikeouts. If, you know, assuming that the swinging strike rate held, uh, you know, what we could reasonably expect going forward. I mean, it would be no guarantee. Like like, uh, our friend Gene McCaffrey always says, something is bettable, it's never bankable. But I thought that that would be a way to get at a bettable projected K total going forward for some outlying pitchers. It was a terrific idea, and uh, Tyson Ross is the poster child for a guy that maybe we should be targeting based on the expectation or the bettable uh, expectation that his strikeout rate will rise, meaning he gets more strikeouts. Maybe you, if you trade for him, you trade for him at the current strikeout rate. Maybe you cash in on the uh, expanded strikeout rate. Yeah, and the thing, too, that's good about this stat is it gives you I always want 
I always want to bet the bigger sample. And so there's obviously a bigger sample of all um, swinging strikes than there are strikeouts. Strikeouts are, are rarer events. So I think there's inherently a higher variability there. So I, I think that the, the strikeout rate, the foundation for the strikeout rate, logically should be the swinging strike rate. So, um, you know, that's sort of the, the conceit. We'll see if it, if it works. Do you ever find yourself looking at a particular player or a kind of player and, and saying, I like this Tyson Ross better than his results and look into it and try to find out why and, and find a path into some new analysis by trying to figure out why a player is not as good as he looks to you? Uh, well, yeah, all the time. I mean, I was just saying Sonny Gray is a guy that I really can't figure out. Like, I really would have said heavily that, that he would have regressed mightily this year based on his strikeout numbers last year and especially his strikeout minus walk numbers. But um, not only has that not come to pass, but his strikeout rate has improved dramatically and um, so as a result obviously has the corresponding strikeout minus walk metric. So um, sometimes you have to understand, like that doesn't mean that you junk the model. It just means that you understand with all of these things that, that uh, these models maybe will get you to an area of like uh, 55 to 60% uh, prediction accuracy where not having a model, and that's a fallacy because everybody who says, well, I don't use any, any statistical models. Like I just, I just look at players and I figure out what they're going to do. I'm more intuitive. They have models too. They just aren't really being honest and, and, uh, and, and clear about what their models are. But they might have a model that I like a guy – you know, I like tall left-handed uh, power hitters. You know, I like sure. short, uh, compact righty. Uh, you, you know, hitters. I like tall pitchers. They have a model. They're just not being honest about it. But what these statistical models stipulate is that you're still going to be wrong a, a fair number of the time. But you're just trying to be right more often than you would be with no um, objective statistical model that's going to actually just tell you, uh, you know, which guys are, are likely to perform better or worse prospectively. Yeah. I remember years ago when I was just starting out in the, in rotisserie and I was talking to a guy in my home league, uh, he's no longer in the league about why he was as successful as he was about pitchers. And I was just getting into baseballhq.com and the other purveyors, prospectus and so forth who are offering up these objective uh, calculations and considerations. And I said, do you rely on any of that kind of thing? And he says, no, I don't have any kind of, um, he didn't use the word model, but that's what he meant. And I said, well, what do you think? Well, what do you look at? He says, for pitchers, strikeouts and walks. And for yeah. hitters, you know, how often they don't strike out and do walk. And I thought to myself, well, th th those are models, you know, and, and I think it wasn't a case of him being dishonest about his models. I think it was a case of him not being systematic about them. Exactly. And other people may like guys that have, like, a certain number, uh, uh, a certain level of draft pedigree. They might like guys, uh, younger players who are touted by certain prospect analysts. Um, they may just like guys that maybe like, you know, baseball HQ touts or fan graphs or, or somebody else. So, uh, I mean, those are models. You're just using other people's models to, to come up with uh, insights into, you know, how players are likely to perform. And it's a very, it's a very tough game. Like, what's the quote by Yogi Berra? You know, predi predictions are hard, especially involving the future. 
Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is a really hard thing to do, to figure out how players with all of these variables are going to perform going forward based on how they're performing presently. You said towards the end of this particular column that your objective when you're doing this work is to provide models that are simple and lead to simple conclusions. That's very well stated, but I think it's very difficult to achieve. I, I do analysis too, and I know it's it's really hard, and I'm wondering how do you hold yourself to the ideal of being simple and explaining simply? Well, you know, that just goes to like my overall philosophy of writing. Like, And, and I, um, I'm fortunate enough to have taught some like university journalism classes well, like at my alma mater, William Patterson University. Um, and what I tell the kids is, is basically like writing is indistinguishable from teaching. Like basically, that's what you're trying to do. You can never, you always have to assume that the reader is pretty much ready to drown at every moment of your article. And what your objective is, is to just like stop him from drowning so he can understand what it is that you're saying. So it doesn't matter like how brilliant your insights are if you can't communicate them very clearly. And, and how that comes into play in terms of just like the underlying, um, uh, you know, let's just call it like a st- statistical model for projecting players, where that comes into play is I just want it to be as simple as possible. Um, and so and a, lot of the, a lot of times this could lead to debates that seem pretty arcane, but like I prefer this just strikeouts minus walks divided by innings pitch, knowing that strikeout percentage minus walk percentage uh, is, a, is a slightly better stat, but it's, it's also more complicated, and it's not as easy to glean um, when you're just looking at, like, a box score or just seeing that your guy pitched seven innings, had six strikeouts, and three walks, and then you could kind of figure out what it is. You don't have to know, like, how many batters they faced and of course, like people can do all this math that they want, but you don't want the reader to have to ever do anything more than than is absolutely necessary to get ninety to ninety five percent of the benefit of whatever it is that you're trying to convey. We're we're talking about the strikeout percentage versus swinging strike column, uh, and you mentioned Tyson Ross as an example of a guy who should be, or the expectation should be, that we that he should be getting more strikeouts based on swinging strikes. Can you give us another example of that and maybe an example or two of guys who are on the bottom side of that equation or who seem to be striking out more than they should? Um, well, that's the, the last thing that I, that I did. I don't have it in front of me. Why don't you throw – if you do, do you have a couple of names like that, that were at the top of that or at the at – the, well, I know Drew Hutchinson was a guy that had pitched really well for the last month. And he was the guy that obviously people liked a lot coming into the season. And then he had this horrible outing uh, against the Red Sox. And so um, I think his currency has, has completely crashed as a result. But he's a guy, his next start is, is against the Mets. Um, I'm sort of on the fence with him. Uh, you know, I don't know whether or not to believe the overall sample or, since, or, or because with him being such a young pitcher, whether to always kind of view the glass as like um, half full. Like a lot of times with this stuff, we're always looking for reasons why guys can't do things. And with some players, especially the players who are more freely available, like on a, on a say, like a mixed league waiver wire, I think it's important to look at things that could go right, not everything that could go wrong. We know all the things that can go wrong with young players, especially young pitchers, but what could go right? So I, I guess what I'm trying to do uh, recently um, with a cheap 
overall pitching strategy. There's the need for upside, obviously, as the season progresses. So do you want to bet sort of the high-floor available mixed-league starter, or do you want to bet the, the prospect, the young pitcher who's just gotten the call-up, who's incredibly hard to project, like a Lance McCullers, for example? And do you want to just, like, seize on that upside? Um, or the chance of that upside, knowing that it's probably not going to happen. But I think what we often forget in this game is it's very hard to win. And to win, a lot of things like that have to go right. So you, I think you need to put yourself in a position to really capitalize on um, the big profit potential that a certain class of players holds. The name at the bottom of the list that really intrigued me, Michael, is Garrett Cole of Pittsburgh, a 28% actual strikeout rate, but a 24% swinging strike rate, which means should should we expect to see his strikeouts drop? And the other part of my question is, is it different if the dif- if the differential is more or less the same, but the actual numbers are way different? Phil Hughes is right by Garrett Cole on the list, but his actual rate is 15 versus 12 a swinging strike. So of, of Hughes versus Cole, a high strikeout guy versus a relatively low strikeout guy with similar differentials, which is the guy we should be more likely to bet against? Well, I just toss all the players who, even if you adjust their their um, strikeout rate in line with their swinging strike rate, it's still not a playable mixed league strikeout rate. I always assume my readers are playing 12-team mixed leagues since that's like the vast majority of the industry. Okay. So um, Hughes, Hughes just gets tossed. Like, I don't care if there's a variance there because even with the most generous assumptions on that variance, he's not going to be playable in the formats that most of my readers are, are playing. Um, but And with Cole, to me, that's not really problematic because he's kind of within a range where his strikeout rate and his uh, swinging strike rate are, are, are more or less in line. I mean, they don't line up perfectly, but Cole also is a, uh extreme ground ball pitcher. Right. And I think there might be something to the extreme ground ball pitcher's um, uh, may, you know, early in the count, pitch to more contact than um, than the fly ball pitchers. But that's just an assumption on my part. Um, and there's also a class of pitchers that sometimes defy the swing-strike correlation with strikeout rate. David Price had done that for many years, and it got to the point where you just accepted that David Price, even though his swinging-strike rate was pedestrian, was still a, a projectable high-strikeout pitcher. When I was looking at the list, Michael, I, I did think, especially when I saw names like Cole and Chris Archer, uh, Chris Archer's uh, actual strikeout rate's around 33%, his swinging strike rate only around 31 so it's a two-point difference. But I'm thinking to myself, at 31, I'll take it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, a 30 is like a magic number. Anybody over 30% you, you want. And I don't think you could really question any uh, degree of strikeout uh, um, performance when their swinging strike rate is at that elite level, because there's only going to be like four or five guys who have a swing, starting pitchers who have a swinging strike rate that high. And at the very top of the list, and this is kind of amusing, uh, Tim Lincecum of the Giants, his strikeout rate is under 20%, but his swinging strike percentage is at 28%, and at 28%, he seems like a playable guy. And you asked rhetorically in the column, am I talking myself into Tim Lincecum? And I wondered, did you talk yourself into Tim Lincecum, and should we? No, I don't. I, I sort of did. I did have him. Um, I streamed him for the Met Star, and that turned out to be an, a non-event since he wasn't able to even make it into the 
fifth inning in that game. I think he threw like 100 pitches as well, which is like a typical Lincecum thing. I think with a, with a pitcher like Lincecum, like you kind of know what he is. So these kind of models, when they, when they spit out a name like that, really aren't as – you can't leverage them as well as you can for a pitcher who's, who's maybe uh, a less proven commodity. I mean, that's what, what you're really looking for. You're looking for the guy who is, uh, for example, like McCullers. Um, his, his strikeout and walk performance has been elite, and it suggests that his overall performance in terms of ERA, um, while obviously we should expect some regression, it does suggest that McCullers is, is a, an elite prospect. So we shouldn't discount entirely the chance that he is going to be a very playable mixed league pitcher going forward. Like so, he's a guy that I would hold. I would not. I would not sell. He, I don't. I don't think you can buy him um, because his owner is going to want too much. I think in return for for him at this point. But um, I, I definitely want to be looking to just like jettison him for you know some high floor you know fringy mixed league starter. Yeah, I think it's an excellent point for everybody to keep in mind, and that is when you generate any kind of research or uh, analytics that point to a particular pitcher, you have to also think about all the rest that applies to that pitcher or hitter for that matter and say to yourself, yes, the this particular analysis seems to point out that R.A. Dickey's a really good pitcher because he's near the top of a list. But when you look at R.A. Dickey on the field, you say to yourself, he's not a really good pitcher, and to, to bet that he's going to suddenly transform himself into a, a much higher strikeout pitcher, a much more effective pitcher, just defies your own eyeballs. Right, and plus, like, that was another case where I don't, I don't think Dickey's uh, swinging strike rate was even that good. It might have no. been higher than his strikeout rate. Right. But, uh, but it wasn't anything that was really uh, bettable in terms of, you, you know, the, the typical format. And there's also hitters that fall into this, too, as, as well. Uh, Joey Butler is a guy that I'm always asked about. And you look at his OPS, and obviously, yeah, I want that. Give me that OPS in my fantasy lineup. But when you look deeper and you see 37 strikeouts and three walks, I mean, come on, what are you going to do with that? Like, we, you don't have to really be an intense baseball fan to know that 37 strikeouts and three walks is not a profile of a player that's likely to have success going forward. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Michael Salfino from the Wall Street Journal and Yahoo Sports. And, and Michael, you also had a Yahoo column, uh, this was a week or so ago in your Pitching by the Numbers, called Special K Relievers, another really interesting concept based on the observation that you can transfer surplus strikeouts from relievers to the rest of your fantasy team's pitchers. How does that work? Yeah, that's one that that's one that I that I like. So what I try to do is I try to get relievers. I don't really look at saves. I'm just looking at the guys who are the best bets to um, have strikeout totals that exceed their their innings pitch. The greater the margin of the excess there, the more I like them. Um, and obviously, if you're striking out that many hitters and you have a strikeout rate that say, 13 or 14 per nine innings or even greater, you're very likely to be a good pitcher and not lose your job as a, a reliever uh, as well. But the huge benefit of this is that you could transfer those surplus Ks to the rest of your staff. And since we typically pay way more for uh, basically these surplus Ks from a starting pitcher than we do for the closer, 
I think that that's sort of a um, market inefficiency. So the the high K closer, I think, is a much more valuable um, fantasy commodity than most of the educated market believes, since many people now are discounting the the value of closers generally in, in five by five formats, which are seem to be like designed specifically to lower the value of a reliever. But I think in this case, when you get that certain kind of reliever, uh, every K that he gets over his innings pitch gets you, uh, raises the uh, K per nine of your starting staff for nine innings. So if you get a guy like a Chapman in his prime who is 50 Ks over innings pitched, you times that 50 times in nine innings, he's giving you 450 innings where his strikeout rate still stays at a very winning fantasy number of nine strikeouts for nine innings. And then he's boosting the strikeout rate of your starting staff one full K per nine for 450 innings. And uh, again, as you said, that has the kind of impact that people don't understand unless they start thinking about it. It puts me in mind of people who very successfully strategize their batting lineups by saying, I can take this player who's an okay player, a mid-range type of player with a slight advantage here or there, but but is poor in some other categories. But if I pair him with his complement, if I pair, if I've got an OBP uh, run scoring um, uh, guy who has uh, you know a, a decent uh, uh, amount of stolen bases, I can pair him up with an Adam Dunn or somebody like that. Uh, not that Adam Dunn's in the league anymore, but I can pair him up with a lower OBP guy, but who's going to provide me with a lot of clout. And if you combine the two players together, then you have and average them. You have two pretty good players. Just uh, the distribution of talent is a little bit different. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like it's like cooking a good meal. Like everything's got to work together. And so I think that's uh, building a good fantasy team is is fundamentally the same thing. You need to you need to have you know these, these ingredients working together in an effective way. And so you know a surplus of strikeouts. The cheaper that you can get them, and in this case, I think. You can get them most cheaply with uh, by paying a little bit more for a reliever. Um, I think that that's going to make your starting staff much more formidable versus what you pay for it. Because think, how much does it cost to get a, a pitcher who has a 7.5 strikeout per nine versus a very projectable 8.5 strikeouts per nine? I mean, that's really that's really how we tier pitchers. Right. So you know, if you do if you do the high strikeout reliever. You're able to go that. You're, you're able to drop a tier for a couple pitchers and basically end up in the same spot because that guy is just trying to get saves. He's not even thinking of strikeouts with his with his relievers, but you are because you're just building an entire team uh, that's going to complement you know one another, ideally. And it makes me think of what we mentioned earlier, Phil Hughes, who's not a playable guy in a 12-team mix. And, and that, that may be true even if you do add a, have a Dellen Batances or Aroldis Chapman to pair with him. But if uh, Phil Hughes only costs you a buck and Dellen Batances or Chapman costs you a couple of dollars more than the other closers, you might actually end up better off because if you assume uh, that Hughes is going to get his share of wins and reasonably decent ERA and whip, which is not the case this year because of his home run issues, but suppose you had last year's Phil Hughes 
and in, instead of paying top dollar for Felix Hernandez or David Price or somebody, because you knew you were going to pair him with Aroldis Chapman and you were going to get your strikeouts through the back door, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's, that's definitely a good way to go. Um, and ideally, you want a pitcher who's, who's got a high floor. Now, Hughes obviously isn't a guy that's worked out, but there are a bunch of guys like that. And the good thing about rostering a guy like Hughes, you know, I, I kind of have like a zero uh, starting pitcher strategy when it comes especially to like a mixed league draft where, you know, I don't really want to take a starting pitcher in those single-digit route rounds. I will take my two relievers. Um, very aggressively in those single-digit rounds. But I want to come out of there with the hitters because I just think that the opportunities always exist for you to find pitching as the season progresses. But if you are a team, and it's very reasonable, I think, to maybe take one ace, just make sure you're getting somebody that, that is really ace-worthy in those high rounds. But if you do that, then I think you've got to back off a little bit and give yourself an opportunity to generate a profit and make that ace pay for himself. Like, you don't, you don't want to just let, then get another one. You want that guy to really have an impact on your team. And that affects your overall construction as the season progresses, too. While I like Lance McCullers uh, as, as a pitcher and a, and a bunch of these prospects over a guy like um, uh, Chris Heston, right? If you have Kershaw, you might want Heston because Heston clearly has a higher floor than all of the rookie prospects. So I think that that's an excellent point that you raised, that you know, you're just looking at your team in totality and you're trying to make the strongest unit that you can. You know, the, the individual value of the player in a vacuum isn't as, as important as how he fits into your overall squad. Yeah, and and the reason I like the idea of pairing, which to be giving full credit, uh, is something that I learned about from Laura Michaels and Todd Zola when they actually applied this theory in a draft that they did as a team. And it's this, when, when you look at your roster of 14 hitters and you're trying to figure out Am I balancing all my, do I have enough stolen bases, home runs, and so forth? And I know there are people who can do it that way, but I always thought that if you could do it in pairs, you only have to worry about seven player pairs rather than 14 individual players and figuring out how they all fit together. And it also opens up a lot of avenues to seek out players who ordinarily aren't worth a lot, but because of their complementary nature to a guy who's already on your roster, they have more value than it appears. Yeah, exactly. And, and the benefit of pair, pair, pairing, like we were talking about before, is while it may not be the absolute best way to, to construct your roster, um, it's a very simple way. And so it's a, it's a practical way to actually, you know, when you're in the sort of the madness of a draft or an auction, right. where you can actually, I think, focus in an educated way and get a, a very high percentage of that, of that potential benefit of this type of like team building approach. Now I noticed on the list uh, you have uh, Batances who ended up being a closer and was a, a top setup guy in a, in a good position. Chapman was a closer. Andrew Miller was the other side of the Yankees situation. David Robertson was a guaranteed closer. Cody Allen, all of these guys. But you also have names like Yimi Garcia of the Dodgers who's not a closer yet, although he certainly could end up being one. Uh, Josh Fields, you say, should actually be the closer in Houston given his uh, much better strikeout rates than uh, Luke Gregerson. You have Craig Kimbrell up there, of course. You also identified Sean Tolleson of Texas, who did take over the role. But the one name that jumps out at me, uh, the outlier that always uh, causes questions, is R.J. Alvarez of Oakland. Very high strikeout guy. He was plus seven in his short uh, tenure, 
but he couldn't stick with the club. That's the thing. Like, obviously, there are other. You, you need to actually be on the team. So, yeah. <laughs> so we, how the managers deploy these guys and and how they sort of rank the guys in the in the hierarchy is a very important thing. You look at Fields now. That that I think is a very interesting name right now. He's got 17 innings, 30 strikeouts, eight walks. That's way more than uh, a, a a strikeout minus walk per innings pitch. You know, he's obviously an ongoing, like, injury risk, and you never even know, like, you, when you're thinking of picking him up, you always have to make sure that he's, like, healthy and available. But it seems to me that he should have that role, and as aggressive as the Astros are with the rest of the roster, I'm kind of surprised that that hasn't happened yet because their bullpen has been, I think, overall a problem, and, and I think the biggest problem that they have is the lack of dominance in that ninth inning, uh, a guy that could come in and blow hitters away. Now, obviously, you have control problems here as well. But even last year, he had 70 strikeouts and 17 walks in 54 innings. So if you add it all up, in his last 71.2 uh, innings, he has 100 strikeouts and 25 walks. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's a 4-to-1 ratio, which is actually very good. Uh, and it's something that ordinarily people would aspire to that but then you have the issue when you're talking about Gregerson they gave him a big contract and when sometimes the guy with the big contract gets to be the closer irrespective of the skill situation until he really drops the ball and, and has to be replaced yeah that, that's true another guy that I think is really interesting if you're speculating on closers is Will Smith of the Brewers because you would think that they'll probably end up trading K-Rod at some point um, and he'll be like a middle reliever or an eighth inning guy, like maybe on a contending, uh, a team that's more likely to contend, I guess. Um, but Smith, to me, has a definite, even though he's a lefty, has a definite dominant uh, reliever profile. So put that one down because uh, Michael Salfino got Sean Tolleson right, and uh, now he's given you a hint on Will Smith. To, uh, maybe you want to take advantage of that. It's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Devitt, with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. And, uh, Michael, I expect to hear some heads exploding uh, around the listening universe, but I know you also write really extensively and you think a lot about fantasy football. I don't. So tell me what is the biggest difference you think in assessing football players versus baseball players for the purposes of fantasy? What are the challenges? Well, the benefit that we have in fantasy baseball is that uh, baseball is a game of individual matchups. So you really only have to worry about pitchers and hitters. Like, there's no real team component. Um, you do have to, obviously, as I mentioned before, you have to worry about how managers deploy players and the playing time that they allocate. Uh, football, though, is has all of those issues, but also has all these parts working in unison, and therefore it is much harder to um, get a sense of which players are, are likely to thrive since they're so dependent upon their, their overall unit. Um, but the one good thing about baseball, uh, football versus baseball is, is that maybe evens it out a little bit in, in, uh, in, in terms of viability in, as it relates to projections, is that football is a game of physical dominance. Baseball is a game of skill. So the skill can be way more variable on any given day than the physical dominance. Um, but th there's not that many players in, in, in football at that level who are uh, significantly more dominant physically than, than their uh, opponents, you know. So, so that's, that's difficulty as well. But I, 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 love, I love both formats, um, and uh, 
you know, um, I always look forward to football season starting. We're going to be ramping that up uh, on Yahoo, especially in in uh, about a month. I have some friends who are baseball enthusiasts and, and football not so much, and one of their arguments that I've heard is, well, football, there's only 16 games in a season. It's way too small a sample size to build up any confidence in, in projecting players or choosing players or paying for players, uh, drafting players, and so forth. And and I, I come back to that and I think, well, geez, isn't there like 70 or 75 offensive snaps per side per game, something like that? And if you multiply that by the 16 games, you're talking about 1,000 plays or more, and that's more than most batters get in uh, in uh, plate appearances, and it's around the same as what uh, a starting pitcher will have in batters faced. So it's not the sample size difference, it seems to me, doesn't play. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I don't really think um, the, the the sample size in football is 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 an issue. And I think like the daily fantasy football game is much easier to project than say the daily fantasy baseball game, obviously. And I think that's the reason because um, the game, uh, a football game, it's it's kind of like the pitchers. And I think that's the reason why in daily you gravitate towards the stud pitcher uh, because the pitcher is is the player that has the greatest sample size in any individual game. And so when you're looking at the skilled players in, in football, um, you know, the running back and the quarterbacks, they have their ball and they have the ball in their hands so often that they're therefore easier to project. They're kind of like pitchers. You know, it's the wide receivers and the, and the tight ends that are obviously harder because uh, with rare exceptions, they're, they're only going to be allocated the ball you know, maybe five to 15 times per game. And when you're just looking at targets, not even actual catches, just right. the times that they're thrown to. I know from my friends who play fantasy football that there are enough different scoring formats that you have to be very, very aware of how your league scores its game, a kind of an obvious consideration. The same is true in fantasy baseball, of course. But if we assume the most common scoring formats, who do you think for 2016's NFL season are going to be the top five football guys? Well, I subscribe to uh, a zero running back theory, which is... um, since the projection risk of running backs is, is twice that historically of uh, wide receivers, um, when you when you end up adjusting those projections um, based on that risk, typically early in drafts the play is always a wide receiver, um, and that kind of flows through with each subsequent early round because teams in those first three or four rounds are loading up so heavily at running back that they're leaving those wide receivers so given that most scoring formats now play three wide receivers plus a flex you could roster four i tend to really look towards loading up on wide receivers in those first three or four rounds so um my guys are not going to be the conventional guys like i would if i had the first pick which i would never want to have because i could have the seventh pick and i could get the wide receiver that I that I want the most, which would be Des Bryant. Um, uh, but if I if I'm stuck with that first pick, I'm probably still going to take that wide receiver, and then I'm going to take wide receivers with the second and third round pick as well. Why not quarterbacks? Don't they generate a lot of points? No, the problem with the quarterbacks is that there's uh, the replacement value is so high. So and and um, what also happens is as the draft progresses. Um, while the top quarterbacks, say like Andrew Luck, may 
may um, the top quarterback like Andrew Luck may may actually end up scoring significantly more points than the quarterback that you take, like say five or six rounds later. It's not going to be enough when you factor in what you could have gotten with those two. And again, we're talking about player pairing. So this would be like pairing, say that Tony Romo quarterback and and the and the um, running back that you could get for luck um, in that spot or wide receiver that you'd get for luck. And when you, when you do those pairings, you're al- almost always better off waiting on the quarterback. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt talking with Michael Salfino about fantasy football. A little bit, just a little bit. Everybody relax. But mostly about fantasy baseball. And, uh, Michael, during the season, I always ask our expert guests to talk about studs and duds in the season so far. You can define that any way you want. Uh, let's start with the hitters, though. And uh, in the American League, who do you think is a stud hitter? Well, I think, you know, obviously Josh Donaldson is just awesome right now. Um, it doesn't really matter where he bats in the lineup. It's kind of weird that he bats second. Uh, I, that whole Blue Jay team, really. I mean, I think Russell Martin, how many run scores does Martin have at this point? I mean, it's... I, I thought when the season started, giving his on-base skills that he and in, in that lineup and in that park, he was a decent bet for 90 runs, which is insane for a catcher. And um, I think he's definitely on pace for that. So, uh, you know, Martin, I think is everybody knows that Donaldson's a stud. I think Martin is the kind of guy that you can maybe get in a trade. That um, you know, right now he's got 39 runs in 55 games. That's that's a lot. Got an 893 OPS. I mean, 10 homers, 34 RBIs. Is anybody making you pay anything close to that price for Russell Martin now? We had a redraft and he didn't even go that high. <laughs> well, I'm pleased to say that Russell Martin was a guy I drafted at Tout Wars. And I remember at the time everybody saying $19 for Russell Martin's too much. But I uh, had actually spoken with you about the topic and uh, I, I expected a big run scoring year. And what does that prorate to? About 115 or so? I'll take that for 19 bucks. Uh, how about in the National League, a stud hitter? Stanton is, is controversial, um, given his high strikeout rate, but the power is just so prodigious. To me, in a redraft, who, I, I guess Bryce Harper's the first pick now, would you say? I would take Paul Goldschmidt. Oh, you'd take Goldschmidt. Okay. Where would you slot Stanton in on that list? I think four or five, probably. Yeah, I think that would be a steal at four or five. I mean, it, power is such a commodity now. And he's on pace for, is he on pace for about 50 homers at this point? And, and what yeah, does he have? Like he's got, he's probably on pace for like 130 RBIs. Those are really, those are, those are kind of like, you know, late 90s numbers in this 2015 run environment. But obviously there's nothing that, everybody knows that he's good. As far as a sleeper hitter in the National League, um, you know, I, I think Jack Peterson is a guy that, a lot of people don't respect. They're waiting for a major regression. I don't really see it coming. Peterson, to me, is a guy that um, uh, scores very well. Uh, I use the inside edge statistics. They grade the hitters in 23 categories that are not um, significantly significantly outcome biased. And um, he scores, I think, a 95, 94 or 95 on a 100-point scale, which is elite. Um, I think he's in like the top 15 easily. And, and I think people are expecting, and I think the stolen bases could actually happen a little bit. Like, uh, that's been the big disappointment with him, but he's got a lot on his plate. So I would expect in that lineup, 
Um, you, you're going to have ample power. I think he's the highest guy in average home run distance as well. Um, I think he had the longest home run of the season. Um, maybe Stanton has passed him up recently, but but he's a guy that I like. And as far as the duds, I guess the biggest dud right now in baseball is Robinson Cano, and I'm very bearish on him going forward. I would not be a buyer at Cano pretty much at any price. How about a National League dud hitter? I guess Kemp. You know, I, I mean, I heard today that somebody thinks that Kemp is going to rebound like he did last year. I just don't see that at all um, because of the hip issue. Now, maybe, you know, obviously I'm not a doctor. I don't really have the expertise at all. I don't have any expertise, actually, in any of these medical outcomes. But it just seems that um, that was a significant issue that almost held up that deal and I think required some renegotiations in terms of that trade. Uh, and so this kind of performance, I think, is in line with that where he's disappointed, and, and I think it's, uh, there's a high degree of probability that he's going to continue to disappoint rather than uh, progressing to maybe like his peak level of performance and something that you could reasonably expect at a player his age. I think he's just older than his age given that hip issue. So we have uh, from Michael Salfino, stud hitters Josh Donaldson and Russell Martin of the Blue Jays in the American League, uh, Giancarlo Stanton and Jock Peterson as National League stud hitters, Yazael dud hitters Robinson Cano and the National League dud Matt Kemp for health reasons. Uh, Michael, let's go over to the mound. Uh, how about in the American League, a stud pitcher? Are we, are we looking for a guy that is maybe going to really outperform his, his current value going forward or a guy that's going to sustain his current level of performance. I mean, those are the, the ways that you could go. I mean, I think, like, Tanaka has, has kind of bounced back, and I think you could maybe still get Tanaka cheap. You would have to accept the risk that he could blow up at any time, like, literally, in terms of his elbow, but the results that he's had to date are definitely um, ace caliber. You don't like a pitcher pitching in the American League East, obviously, and you certainly don't like a pitcher ever pitching against the Blue Jays, especially. But at least he doesn't have to face the Yankees, which I, who I think are like the second best offensive team, and especially in that park. So um, I, I think Tanaka is a guy that I would be speculating on if I was like really desperate for a stud. I think that he's like the cheapest guy that you could get in the American League and the National League. Like I'm a total believer in Garrett Cole. Like I think Cole is potentially like one of the best pitchers in baseball. Jacob Degrom to me, is like a top 10 starter overall in baseball, and I don't think he gets that respect. I don't know why. I think it still has to do with his uh, relatively low prospect standing prior to ascending to the major leagues, but I think uh, there's nothing that you can look at with Jacob deGrom and come away with this uh, feeling that he is not uh, an upper echelon fantasy ace. And turning to the dud side, let's start in the American League again. Who do you think is an American League pitcher you want no part of? Well, there are a lot of pitchers that I want no part of in the American League. I think uh, Ventura is a guy that maybe like the market is way higher on than I am. Um, I mean, he does have good velocity, but I don't see the strikeout results. And a, a pitcher his size who throws that hard, I'm always skeptical of. Like, everybody always points to Pedro Martinez, but Pedro is kind of like Sue Generous. Like, Pedro is Pedro. Like, that's what makes Pedro such a, a fascinating story is that he's the sort of uh, exception to the rule. You know, usually the pitchers who throw hard require and, and generate those kind of elite strikeout numbers require uh, uh, just in terms of physics, uh, elite size as well. Um, 
And in, in the National League, a, a dead pitcher, I guess, you know, if anybody's thinking that Lester is going to bounce back, I'm, I'm thinking that that's just not going to happen whatsoever. I'm, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be buying um, Lester right now, even on 70, at 75 cents on the preseason dollar. And you're not the first person who said that. I'll, I'll just uh, throw that in as a comment on John Lester. There's a lot of concern about John Lester. Uh, Michael Salfino's uh, studs and duds for the pitchers. Masahiro Tanaka of the Yankees as an American League stud. A National League, uh, Garrett Cole. I really like that pick as well. Jacob DeGrom of the Mets. Jordano Ventura and John Lester are the duds in the American League and National League, respectively. Michael Salfino, man, this has been a gas. I really appreciate you taking the time. Where can listeners read more? or follow you uh, on the web? In any search engine, type in Selfino WSJ or Selfino Yahoo to get to my archives um, there. And uh, I'm on Twitter all the time, and that's just at Michael Selfino. One long word, S-A-L-F-I-N-O, and Michael is spelled A-E, not E-A, all you people. <laughs> yeah, that's Michael Ray Richardson, the only one who did that. That's, that was an outrage. <laughs> it certainly is. Uh, Michael, as I said, uh, it's just been a tremendous pleasure to talk with you. I really appreciate it, and um, hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. Yes, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed the podcast immensely. Um, the only bad drawback to being on it is it's not going to be as fun to listen. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it never is, right? That's why I find it hard to listen to, too. I keep going, oh, I can't believe I said that. Oh, geez, listen to me stumble, and so forth. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you're you get You're great, it. by the way. You're, Thank you're you. You're a great podcast Thanks a million, Michael. I really do appreciate it. Michael Salfino is a baseball writer and analyst for Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. Hey, hey, Michael, when you write in the Wall Street Journal, I've meant to ask you this. Do they make one of those little pencil sketches of you? No, I don't have a pencil sketch because the columns that I write in are usually they're they're called take a number in the new on the New York side and the count on the national side. That's what what I mostly do. And those columns have their their own logo that doesn't incorporate a writer. I, I don't think any of the sports guys get that. By the way, I think only like the columnists on the editorial side get it. But I don't know. Maybe I'll have maybe I'll have somebody make one that I could just post as my Twitter icon. That would be awesome if you could get that same guy to, or whoever. I guess maybe they have a stable of people. It would be great. Well, maybe there's like some sauce where we generate one. Sad to say you're probably right. Uh, anything to put artists out of work, I guess. Uh, thanks a million, Michael. Talk to you soon. Okay, my pleasure. Next up, our Baseball HQ commentaries, Minor League Minute, Playing Time, and Frequent Flyers all coming up. By the way, we talked about the Toronto Blue Jays earlier. Do you know what the record is for the longest winning streak in Major League Baseball? We'll tell you on the other side of the break. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you. So we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Og Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Before the break, we asked which team had the longest winning streak in Major League Baseball history. And if you said the Chicago Cubs, give yourself the gold star. The Cubs ran off 21 straight wins back in 1935. The Oakland A's came close to that mark in 2002, of course. You'll probably remember the Athletics running off 20 in a row. BaseballHQ.com is ready to help you stay ahead of the game all season long with great content like Playing Time Today, where we monitor changes in rosters and playing time allocations. And this week, National League East analyst Phil Hertz looks at the return of Doug Fister and what that means for the Nationals' rotation. Jason Collette goes deep in a facts and fluke spotlight analysis of Steven Sprasberg. And Ray Murphy's speculator column looks at league leaders who have downside risk. BaseballHQ.com updates its content every day across a wide range of great information and tools like our Buyer's Guide Skills Assessment Columns, Performance Validation in Facts and Flukes, Roster Management in Playing Time Today and Tomorrow, as well as daily matchups, team coverage, minor league scouting, our projections and other roster management tools. Everything you can use to help you dominate your league and it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Tuesday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time and frequent Flyers comments, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And with the Twins having called up top prospects Byron Buxton and Jorge Polanco, it's a scouting double play with two more top Twins prospects, third baseman Miguel Sano and right-hander Jose Barrios. Here's BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. Now that the Super 2 arbitration deadline has passed, there's been a flurry of elite prospects called up to the majors. Within the past two weeks, four of the top 10 prospects in baseball have made their MLB debut, and there will undoubtedly be more on the way over the next several weeks. The surprising Minnesota Twins have already called up Byron Buxton and will likely add slugging third baseman Miguel Sano and 21-year-old righty Jose Barrios. Sano, who missed all of 2014 after having Tommy John surgery, sometimes struggles to make consistent contact. He now owns a career minor league average of just 277 and isn't likely to hit for average right out of the gate. Throughout his minor league career, he struck out in about 25% of his at-bats, but he does have some of the best raw power in the minors. On the year, Sano is hitting 258 with a nice 359 on base percentage and a 500 slugging percentage. He has 12 doubles and 11 home runs, and now owns a career slugging percentage of 559. Jose Barrios was a supplemental first-round pick out of Puerto Rico in 2012 and comes after hitters with a plus 92 to 96 mile an hour fastball, a power curve, and a much improved changeup. The improved changeup has been key to his rapid development, and after 12 AA starts, Barrios is 7-3 with a 3.21 ERA, and fantasy owners should take note of his career 9.54 dominance rate. The Twins are unlikely to hold on to first place all season, but with Buxton, Snow, and Barrios on the way, Twins fans finally have something to get excited about. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Chris Maloney, Colby Garropy, Nick Richards, Matt St. Germain, Brent Hershey, and Alec Dopp have reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on the rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage continues with a preview of the College World Series. In call-ups, we have the aforementioned Byron Buxton, as well as top Cleveland shortstop prospect Francisco Lindor, Yankees outfielder Mason Williams, that name sounds familiar, and many more. And we have a watch list report identifying players on the verge of being called up. These are not the top prospects, but 
Guys in position to hit the big leagues because of injury replacements, outstanding performance in the minors, or both. And these are guys who could provide you immediate help. In the latest edition, Alec Dopp looks at Cleveland right-hander Cody Anderson, Texas righty Anthony Ronaldo, and still another Twins prospect, DH outfielder Adam Walker. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, you better believe BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, looking at situations that could mean players getting more chances or fewer. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield speculates on rotation changes in St. Louis. The St. Louis Cardinals rotation went through some more changes last week as Lance Lynn hit the DL with a forearm strain. And a quick look at that rotation could lead to some more shuffling at some point later this season. In a playing time tomorrow column this week on BaseballHQ.com, Brian Rudd reminded us that the team may want to limit innings to youngsters Michael Waka and Carlos Martinez. And he also reminded us that Jaime Garcia is still somehow in the rotation through mid-June without hurting himself. These scenarios, coupled with Lynn's injury, will likely lead to more playing time for some pitchers that may be available in your league. Tyler Lyons is first up, and he was called up from AAA to replace Lynn in the rotation. Lyons received three starts back in May. Uh, He was sent back down to AAA Memphis, where he put up a tremendous 30-3 to strikeout-to-walk ratio, which earned him the call again. Lyons is outpitching his 5.0 ERA in the majors through his four starts with a 23 to 6 strikeout to walk ratio and a 3.23 expected ERA. Lyons remains a viable option in deep leagues while Lance Lynn is out and he's probably first in line should another injury occur. Tim Cooney also lies as a viable rotation option for St. Louis. Cooney made a spot start earlier in May, so he's clearly close to being ready in the minds of the organization. Cooney pitched well in AAA this season so far with a 2.51 ERA through 10 starts and a 3.6 strikeout-to-walk rate. Cooney doesn't have major strikeout potential, so his overall upside is a little bit limited, but deeper league owners will want to track Cooney as he may be next in line. And finally, the best chance for the most valuable production in St. Louis's rotation could be Marco Gonzalez down the line. Gonzalez is currently out with a shoulder impingement, but his MRI came back clean and he could be back on the mound within a week or two. The 23-year-old lefty was rated as the team's number two prospect by BaseballHQ.com's minor league team entering the season. And though Gonzalez has struggled in AAA before the shoulder injury, he has more upside long-term than Lions or Cooney. So if the time off gives Gonzalez a boost, he could easily be in factor in St. Louis later this season. So keep an eye on Tyler Lyons, Marco Gonzalez, and Tim Cooney as rotation options for the Cardinals throughout the season. Given potential innings limits to Waka and Carlos Martinez, as well as injury risks of Lance Lynn and Jaime Garcia, they could be in the rotation soon. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every Tuesday. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big profits. This week's Frequent Flyers, Adam Duval, Stephen Matz, and Dilson Herrera. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. 
It's been an exciting week. Byron Buxton and Francisco Lindor were finally called up. That means now may be a great time to land a few other players who may be available in your league. This week's edition of Frequent Flyers will look at three players who may be on your league's waiver wire and may be worth a flyer, beginning with San Francisco's Adam Duvall, who is currently leading the Pacific Coast League with 14 home runs. For comparison, last season Jack Peterson batted 303 with 33 home runs through 121 games in the PCL, and Chris Bryant finished with a 295 batting average and 21 home runs in 70 games. Duval finished right in between those two rookie stars with 27 home runs and a 298 batting average in 91 games. Is it really fair to compare Adam Duval with Jack Peterson and Chris Bryant? Probably not. Duvall is somewhat of a defensive liability, especially when compared to those two. Plus, BaseballHQ.com projects Duvall to have a contact rate of only 75% in 2015. That's the upper level of what the baseball forecaster refers to as the hackers of society. However, his power could really light up the scoreboard at the major league level, and he did have three home runs in only 28 games with the Giants last year. Now let's shift gears and talk about a pitcher in the PCL who is really lighting up the radar gun. Our second frequent flyer is New York Mets pitching prospect Steven Matz, who will likely be promoted within the next week or two. Second chances don't happen often in fantasy baseball. However, if you missed out on picking up Noah Syndergaard, perhaps now is the time to grab Steven Matz if he's available. Don't wait. Through 78.1 innings pitched at the AAA level this season, Matz, a lefty with a high 90s fastball, a mid-80s changeup, and an effective curveball, has produced a 2.30 ERA and leads the hitter-friendly Pacific Coast League with 81 strikeouts. Although his 9.3 dom points to possible elite skills at the major league level, his command and control ratios of 2.7 and 3.45 respectively show that he needs to walk less batters before reaching elite status. Nevertheless, Matts may be one of the hottest waiver wire pickups once he is promoted. Grab him now! Finally, our last frequent flyer is New York Mets second baseman, Dilson Herrera. Though only 21, Herrera has assumed the starting second base job after returning from the DL last week. As a 20-year-old, Herrera got his first taste of the big leagues last season. Through 18 games with the Mets in 2014, he batted 220 with three home runs and only 59 at-bats. This season, Herrera has batted 367 through 22 games at AAA. However, be sure to temper expectations, especially with such a small sample size. Even though Herrera has reached base safely in a career-high 10 straight games at the Major League level, including two home runs dating back to May 6th of this year, his actual to-date XBA, according to BaseballHQ.com, is only 218. Remember, all of the players mentioned in our frequent flyer segments are long shots who could be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Even so, with both Daniel Murphy and David Wright out, the Mets offense really needs a spark. And if your fantasy team really needs a spark, consider adding Adam Duvall, Steven Matz, and Dilson Herrera, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyer comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, June the 16th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 34 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. You might have noticed a change of pace on the music for this closing segment. I mentioned earlier in the show that the Yankees have called up an outfielder named Mason Williams, and that put me in mind of this instrumental hit, Classical Gas, 
which was recorded by another Mason Williams way back in 1968. I want to thank our guest expert for today's edition of Baseball HQ Radio, Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. It's a pleasure that I get to talk with Michael at industry events and so forth, and I'm really glad that I had the chance to talk with Michael while you had a chance to listen as well. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. And our frequent flyers commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt. I have a Baseball HQ research and analysis article on the site right now looking at the predictive power of hot pitching streaks. And of course, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt and be among the first to know when a new podcast is available. Also, remember we have an email address now. It's bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. You can contact us with suggestions, comments, and questions for our experts. And remember, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep our podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our regular news and notes edition featuring Todd Zola. That'll be the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.